I'm sure you know that this morning is Palm Sunday. Uh, Palm Sunday is the day that we remember and we reflect on Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. It's the beginning of Passion Week. You consider Jesus riding into the city fully knowing what is going to take place there, what's going to happen to him there. And as he rides in, knowing that he will be arrested, knowing that he will suffer, knowing that he will die, he's riding in in the midst of a crowd that is worshiping him, waving palm branches and crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. And yet, they weren't realizing that this king and the way of this worthy king, the promised Messiah, is the way of suffering and death which would bring redemption and perfection for those who believe. That's a wonderful picture of grace. We've sung about grace, but that's such a wonderful picture of grace. Jesus going into Jerusalem to be slaughtered for the redemption of our sins, even as people are cluelessly worshiping Him. And He loves them. He's gracious. He set an example for us. He paid the price for all who would believe the whole price for all who would believe, but He also calls us to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow. And as we've been going through Hebrews chapter 11, where we're going to be again this morning, we're finishing up chapter 11, and one of the things that we can say is that this list, and certainly this is not a complete list in Hebrews 11, but this list is filled with examples of people who laid down earthly desires experienced sufferings, all for the hope that was still to come in Christ. We're going to look today at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 39 and 40. And so if you turn there and stand, follow along as I read. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your goodness. Thank You for Your grace, Lord. You're so gracious to us. Even this gathering of people is a picture that You are really gracious. So we pray that You'd help us. Thank You for Your Word today. We pray that you speak to us through your word and help us by it. Grow us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. I want to just observe the text together this morning. I want to let the text be our outline. And so as it begins in verse 39, and all these, he's just finished listing person after person after person from the Old Testament and examples of faith and all these. Think about all of the examples of faith I've just given you, the writer of Hebrews is saying. Think of all of them, even the ones I didn't have time to mention or name by name. As you consider all of these stories and all of these examples of faith, there's a, there's a twist that he gives us here in these last two verses. So think about all of them, this long list. And all of these 
though commended through their faith. Now the though is our, our cue that there's something coming. This is how the chapter begins, right? In, in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. All of the people before Christ, all of those people listed in Hebrews chapter 11, all of those throughout the Old Testament were commended by their faith. And now he, he resolves this chapter with the same statement. And all these, though commended through their faith, All those who trust in God, the known and the unknown, those that we remember and even celebrate, those we don't, those who anonymously persevered through suffering, those whose stories we love, and those whose stories we don't even understand, like Jephthah. Taylor did a wonderful job on the text last week. But I want to revisit that name just for a second, Jephthah. You don't have to turn there. But can we just be honest for a moment? I've dwelt on this a lot this week. The story of Jephthah. I'm just going to be honest, and I think you're going to say, hey, I agree. I think so. I would not have put him in Hebrews 11. He would not have made the cut. I wouldn't have either, okay? I wouldn't have put me there either, but I would not have put Jephthah in Hebrews 11. He made a vow to the Lord to sacrifice whatever came out of his house when he returned from war, if the Lord gave him the victory, and his daughter walks out, and it says he fulfilled the vow he made to the Lord. I don't get that. I don't understand that. I have a hard time with that except for this the Lord is far far more gracious than you and I could ever give him credit for they were commended through their faith God does not forget those who love and serve him. Even though we are broken, even though we are weak, how wonderful is his grace. His grace is way more gracious than we could ever imagine. And if you don't read the story of Jephthah and find hope for your life and your salvation, commends their faith. There's a hymn that I used to sing growing up. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. All our sin. They were all saved by faith. They believed and God counted that to them as righteousness. That's a phrase I hope, I hope we never get tired of hearing. That he counted it as righteousness. That he credited them. That he put in, their, he put in Jephthah's account righteousness. 
No matter what the story of Judges 11 paints and what, no matter what I come away with, no matter what opinion I come away from Judges 11 about Jephthah, it doesn't matter. Because in his account was righteousness. That's grace. In other words, they believed or we believe and God counts it as if they lived a righteous life. Which means two things. We don't. We don't live righteous lives. Or He wouldn't have to count that to us. He wouldn't have to credit that to us. But it also means that God is really, really gracious. But, but here's the twist in, in Hebrews 11. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Yes, the writer's saying they were counted righteous. But none of them experienced the fullness of the promise or of the gospel. None of those mentioned or not mentioned in chapter 11 received the promise. Now, many promises were fulfilled in their lifetime. But they didn't receive the great promise. They never saw the fulfillment of the promise they were waiting for, which was the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Jesus Christ, or salvation in His name. They all died before Jesus appeared, but they were saved. And how? He tells us through faith. They were looking ahead to the Messiah who is to come, the Christ, and they believed the God who promised that this great Redeemer was coming. And they believed God. They believed His Word. They trusted Him, that there was one who was coming to save and to redeem and their lives were marked by that faith. They believed God and it was counted, credited to them as righteousness. They were saved before Christ, but not apart from Christ. That's, that's the point here that he's saying. They were saved before Christ, but not apart from Christ. They did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us. Now, this is amazing. And here is one of the reasons why this is amazing. Just consider, as you think about the writer of Hebrews saying in all of these, just consider one of these. Consider Moses. The writer of Hebrews is saying, since God had provided something better for us, that's, that's a lot more than the people in this room, but it's us. Think about Moses. Two, two verses. Exodus 33, verse 1. Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. It's phenomenal. It's mentioned again, Numbers chapter 12, verse 8, speaking to Miriam and to Aaron. The Lord says, With him 
I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. He beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? You just, just think about that. That's, these verses are true. This is the Lord. This really happened. Now imagine that. Face to face as to a friend. That is a wonderful truth. A wonderful blessing that Moses received. And that's mercy. That is grace. You consider the the Old Testament scriptures in Isaiah 6 and his response to seeing the Lord? That's grace. That's mercy. And yet the writer of Hebrews says, God provided something better for you. God provided something better for us. The new covenant fulfilled in Christ He's saying we are, we are more than blessed to live on this side of the cross. Whether we feel it or not, whether we recognize it or not, we are more than blessed to live on this side of the cross. We have the full gospel story. We know what God has done to rescue and to redeem the people mentioned in, in Hebrews chapter 11 and all those of faith in the Old Testament and up to the cross of Christ were all looking ahead, hoping. And we're looking back. All these, though commended through faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us. That, apart from us, they should not be made perfect. No one, the writer of Hebrews is saying, no one was made perfect under the old covenant because Christ had not yet died. Now, he's not at all saying that they really weren't counted righteous in Christ, they, counted, uh, their, that their faith was not counted as righteousness. He's not saying that. Before God, their account was righteousness. But that work, they were saved, but that that work of salvation was not made perfect. Salvation was not made complete until Christ had come and given His life as an atoning sacrifice for sins. For the sins of those who believed in the Old Testament, for the sins of those who believe in the New Testament. Their salvation looked ahead to what Christ would do. Ours looks back to what Christ has done. And what he's saying is the faithful of all the ages would not be made perfect apart from Christ's work on the cross. Leon Morris writes this, only the work of Christ brings those of the Old Testament times and those of the new and living way alike into the presence of God. It is Christ's work alone that brings salvation. In other words, as you as you hold the Scriptures, you look at the Bible, there's not, there's not two stories being told. It's not old story and new story. It's not angry God and calmed down God. There's one magnificent story of redemption in 
all of it focuses on Christ and his work on the cross and the grace that is given to us through him. All of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Think about that. Think about all of those he mentions. Think about what he's saying here in 39 and 40. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Now, let me ask you this. Do you see our condition, our situation, on this side of the cross as something better? Truly. Not to answer out loud, so just be honest. Do you see it as better? Consider the verses we looked at about Moses. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Exodus 33, 1. Numbers 12, 8. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. He beholds the form of the Lord. Consider what Jesus says to the disciples in John chapter 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. As those of us who live in the new covenant truth of salvation and sanctification, we've been given the full story and the full effects of the gospel. But it's easy for us to give assent to the question, do you see it as better? It's easy for us to say, of course I see it as better, Hebrews says. I mean, it says right there. I don't know who the writer of Hebrews is, but he did say it's better. So, of course, I see it as better. But do you really see it as better? Yes, I believe he reserves something better for me. Would you look at the benefits of your relationship with God as something better than the benefits of Moses' relationship with God? Or how about the disciples? Would you look at the benefits of your relationship with God better than the disciples' benefits of the relationship with God when they had Jesus right next to them? Do you wrestle with that text? John 16, 7, do you look at that and say, Yes, it's better that Jesus isn't standing here physically with me because of what I've gained by his going to the Father. Do we realize the benefits of the gospel that Jesus died and rose again and has given his spirit, the Holy Spirit, to those who trust in Him. I think at times we debate the work of the Holy Spirit far more than we embrace and delight in the work of the Holy Spirit. We have the perfection of Christ the writer says it's better for us under the new covenant. We have a high priest who has offered a perfect sacrifice for our sins once and for all. Jesus, our Savior and priest, sits at the right hand of the Father and prays for us. 
We have His Holy Spirit to lead and to guide us. And both the Son and the Spirit are praying for us. Prayers that are God's will for us. How do we respond to that? Do we respond with a faith that is worthy of the calling to which we've been called? The writer of, uh, of Ephesians, Paul, in Ephesians 4, as he, as he lays out in chapters 1, 2, and 3, the beauty of the gospel and the depths of the gospel and all the benefits that we have in Christ, he makes this transition in chapter 4 of what then does that mean? And he begins chapter 4 saying, I therefore, in light of all of this truth, of, of all that we have gained, the benefits we have in Christ, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In other words, as you consider the benefits of the gospel, as you consider all that you have gained by His grace and none by your works, I urge you that you would walk according to the faith that you have in Him and according to the faith that is worthy of the gospel. What does that look like? We just went through an entire chapter of person after person who did things. Things that related to the proclamation of God's Word, to mercy, to justice. Faith-filled things because they had genuine faith. The writer of Hebrews in the midst of chapter 11 says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, not having what we have but having seen them and greeted them from afar. In other words, never having tasted, never fully knowing, just seeing as through a cloud. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. It looked like something. They lived in the light of the city that would become theirs, and they displayed the light of the king who reigns there. This is what His kingdom looks like, and this is how we live. And the writer says, we have something better. We have the fullness of the gospel story. How will we live to reflect that? Oh, that we would live in a manner worthy of the calling, in a manner that reflects the wonder and hope that is ours in Christ. As you look at the, the different ways that these individuals lived out their faith, may we be a people who seek a life that displays the coming kingdom in all of its ways. May we be a people who reflect the mercy, who reflect the peace, who reflect 
the justice, who reflect the love. All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, and God had provided something better for me, for you. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Are we living in faith and in response to that truth? We're going to go into a time where we take the Lord's Supper. We're blessed to remember the sacrifices of the new covenant. That's a blessing. The work of Christ that brought us into relationship with God the Father. That bought for us the new and better way, the fulfillment of the promise. Each and every time we, we take the bread and take the cup, it's not, it's not meant to be some ritual that we just do. It's, it's a blessing. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, it's, it's a great blessing. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says in verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Whatever we, whatever we disagree on, what Paul's saying is this is a place we come together, and not just together. This is what holds us together and, and causes us to seek unity in all things. And not just that, Jesus is participating with us. That word participate is the same word in Acts 2 where it says that the, the disciples devoted themselves to fellowship. It's the same Greek word. Devoted themselves to fellowship. And what he says is when we take the bread and the cup, we fellowship together with him. That is a, that is a wonderful, that's just one of the wonderful blessings of the new covenant. It's something that we we don't want to just get used to doing. It's not something we just, we chomp down on the bread and we tip back the cup and, and that's just kind of part of our service. No, it's a massive part of our service together because in it, we're united together in Christ because of what these things symbolize. That his body was broken and his blood was shed to bring us together and to make a people for himself. That's significant. If you turn the page to chapter 11, we're not going to read through it, but Paul warns about the significance of that, that we just don't take it in, a, in an unworthy manner, that if, if you don't have a relationship with the Lord, what we would encourage you to do in light of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, just let the bread and cup pass. There's nothing magical about them. It's, it, they're symbols. We, we take them and we participate together in them to remember the beauty of the gospel. And in fact, Paul says every time we do it, we proclaim it. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so I would encourage you, just, just let the bread and cup pass and ponder what I just said. Do I see that as beautiful? Do I see that as a a glorious, wonderful thing that Christ died for sins? And do I trust him for that?
And, and my encouragement would be partake of him today. Embrace him today. If you would want to talk to someone about that, I would love to talk to you. Pastor Taylor would love to talk to you. Any of our elders, any of, any of the leaders that we have here at the church would love to speak to you about that. But as the bread and cup are passed, let's just remember together we have something better because of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. You're good, and everything you do, Lord, is good. So what the psalmist tells us, and Lord, we believe. You're good and you do good. So we thank you and we praise you for that truth. We don't understand everything, Lord. But we know this as we look at the things that even we don't understand. You are a very gracious God. You bid us to come to you in faith, trusting in the work of Christ, not in anything that we could do or accomplish, but in what only he could do. That He took our sins on the cross, and he satisfied your wrath against those sins. And in trusting in him, you, in your grace and mercy, count us as righteous. We praise you for those truths, and we pray that you'd help us, even as we hold the bread and hold the cup, that we would remember and rejoice and that your word would be true as it's displayed through our body that you would unite us together in him and that we would seek together the things that display what you died for and your kingdom that is to come we pray in Christ's name Amen